Good morning. Special happy Father's Day to you and all you dads out there and those who have served as fathers to many who need them. And we're grateful for you. We're grateful for the godly example that you provide and we're grateful for the disciples that you're making. And I'm grateful that you're here and provide the leadership here at our church that is so vital. It's good to be with you. I'm Kurt Parker. And if you're a guest with us today, we're glad that you're here. And I pray that this is going to be a blessing to you today. Already has been, I hope. And before you leave there in front of you in the chair, you'll find a welcome guest card. If you would fill that out, uh, hand that to me before you go or leave it there behind on the chair. If you would place it on the welcome table, we'd love to get to know you better. Let us know how we can pray for you and, and how uh, we can best minister to you and what we can and what questions we may be able to answer. It is uh, Father's Day, so with that comes really bad dad jokes, so they're bad enough. I don't need to comment on them. You can just um, read them and give them the obligatory chuckle that they deserve. And uh, if you're getting them, you know, do you need coffee? Because we usually serve coffee, but we didn't serve it today. The COVID-19 version of church, which is a bunch of uh, tired faces, right, with no caffeine. Anyway, it's uh, it's good to be together today. It's one of my favorite Sundays where I get to talk to dads. As on Mother's Day, we get to talk to moms. Father's Day, though, if you maybe maybe some of your uh, Facebook pictures or your Instagram pictures cycled back up a year ago around this time, I usually include some pictures of the family. Sometime today, I'm sure you'll snap one doing things. Of course, you have da- pictures of your dad doing things with you, maybe some uh, captured on a phone, or as the case for me, a Kodak camera. Uh, memories of a dad's love, I hope you've had that, a portrait maybe from the past that kindles some warm feelings for you. I hope uh, you've been able to experience that. If you haven't and you're a believer, uh, the Lord has no doubt filled that gap with someone and with himself, and uh, you have that portrait of your, in your mind of those things. Love given and shared, at, uh, that portrait brings to mind. People have tried to capture this picture of love. Listen, if you would, to Shakespeare's attempt at Sonnet 116. I actually read this to my wife when she walked down the aisle. Uh, It says, Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the removal to remove. Oh, no. It is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth is unknown, although its height is taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickles come. Love alters not with his grief hours and weeks, but bears out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ nor man ever loved. There's a snapshot from the late 1500s of a husband's or a a father's love. And everyone you read, everything that's been written, including this one without exception, it's always a description. It's a smile, it's a metaphor, it's a personification. Adjectival mark to reach for like it's lasting or it's priceless or it's timeless uh, by way of an abstract or by way of a feeling or by way of an attitude, an ideology. This is what we see when we read or see things like that, but the Bible doesn't mention it in that way. We see another snapshot from the life of William Gladstone, Prime Minister of England, multiple times from the late 1860s to the mid-1890s. It goes like this. The story is told that while facing one of the great crises of his political life, Gladstone sat writing at 2 a.m. in the morning a speech which he hoped to win 
a great political victory in the House of Commons that next day. But at 2 a.m. in the morning, a mother came to his door, a mother of a crippled boy in very poor health who lived in a tenement not too far away. She begged the servant to speak to Gladstone, and the servant relayed the message that she wanted him to come to the tenement to bring a message of hope and cheer her little boy. She'd heard that Gladstone, being very compassionate, might have something to say that could help him. Without hesitation, Gladstone, the Prime Minister of England, left the preparation of his very important speech and spent the rest of the night with that little boy. And Gladstone led him to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Staying till dawn, knowing the child did not have long to live, he brought much comfort and assurance to the mother, and after closing the little boy's eyes, he went home with a heart, he said, quote, that was flooded with the peace of God. Later that morning, he told a friend, quote, I am the happiest man in the world today. Why was it so? Well, from the sacrifice of the national politic of England and perhaps the world, Gladstone had stopped to show the love of Christ to one little crippled boy in a tenement in London. And a few hours later, he made what biographer, biographers say was the greatest speech of his life. That's beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful when you see love in action. It's selfless. This love was selfless, selfless, and it's always so amazing when it happens or when we read about it because we're just used to saying it or trying to describe it when love is actually known by what it does. That's a great portrait, I think, 1800s. And you know, each time there's a picture taken or a portrait is done, someone has to be the subject. And in our passage for today in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, the snapshot is of Christ. I'd like you to turn there, 1 Corinthians 13. Because he is love as it is expressed here. And I think what Jesus Christ really wants as we read this little passage here is for his church, so much, most certainly for the men in the church. Uh, he wants a whole lot of reprints. He wants uh, that portrait of love to be reproduced in us. And it has been our habit over the last several Father's Days really summing up behavior that flows out of biblical manhood. Uh, the man that God thinks is great. We're going to do the same today. And you could make a strong case then for the passage of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, because if it applies to anyone, it applies to men first in the church. And on Mother's Day, we looked at forgiveness and we looked at some hard things that have to be done as a mom and as a wife and as a mother. And for Father's Day, we're going to look at love, very basic stuff in both of those days, but those kinds of things which, when obeyed, yield rich dividends. So if you would, look with me in verse 4. We're going to spend some time here today. Chapter 13. It's not a passage that's unfamiliar to you, but one perhaps that uh, will be encouraging to you as you wonder how you can be a better dad on Father's Day and every day after that. Verse 4 says, love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag, is not arrogant, and does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Verse 8, love never fails. And as it's very common with Paul, this format, 16 short, sharp imperatives by way of an exhortation, really summing up behavior that flows out of faith. And even in the English rendering of the passage, what you see is love is patient and love is kind and love is not this and love does not do 
that and, and what you have here in English are adjectives. But in the Greek, they're not adjectives, they're verbs. And because the illustration of Gladstone, we could see scriptural love is not something you describe with adjectives. Scriptural love is something you describe with verbs. Because love is only love when it acts. As Alex sang the last song, a ransom from heaven. This is love, that not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the satisfaction for our sins and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. See, Love is only love when it acts. So Jesus sits at the portrait. So if it applies to anyone, it applies to men first. So we're going to look at this men as is our habit when, you know, when we're together on our camping trip, I'm very frank with you. I'll be frank with you this morning and not to give you a hard time, not to talk down to you in any way, because I have to apply these passages to myself uh, before I apply them to you. And so this is our desire. And in this wonderful passage, we're able to see 16 ways that love acts. And, and we won't get through very many today, and that's probably not a surprise to you. But my thought was that as many as we get through, let's make a commitment together, men, to put these things to work. If we understand them, even the most in the most rudimentary level, at the most rudimentary level, our wives and our children and those we interact with lives will be exponentially greater and better. And, and our testimonies will be shored up, and, and our marriage is more stable, and the reproduction of ourselves and our sons, or those that we're discipling, will be more like Jesus and less like the flesh. So that's my desire. That's kind of our, if you will, our thesis. This is what we're attempting to accomplish today, and this is because um, we're going to, to a greater or lesser extent, behave differently if we understand what this says when we walk out of here than perhaps we behaved on the way here. So my challenge to you men right now as we start this, will you have the integrity and honesty to put up your lives, put your lives up against these passages? That's what I want you to do. Just measure your life against the passage. Don't think about somebody else. Don't think about what your dad taught you, don't what he did or what your grandpa did or what, whatever, okay, what you did prior to this. Okay? Comparing ourselves with ourselves is not wise. And comparing what you do and just say, well, I learned this from my dad, or I'm Hispanic, or I'm whatever, and I, this is how I act, I'm Italian. I'm sorry, that's just flesh, okay? And what we have to do is make sure that uh, we compare how we're supposed to live as disciples with what the Word actually says. So that's my desire. Have the integrity to put your life up against these passages in just the next few minutes, men. And, and as you begin to embrace these things, you see where perhaps you're not living up to those things. Your wives, your family will be benefited greatly as you begin to come in line those things, because the things that we're going to see here are not things that you and I don't understand. And they're not even things that we haven't looked at, because we went through First Corinthians, and so way back a number of years ago, we went through these passages. So we know what they say. It's just things that we don't apply for one reason or another, and we always justify those things. But So the information is not going to be new. It's not going to be profound for you. You're not going to come away thinking, oh, I never knew that before. Well, that's a really new thing. It, I want you to look at them just from a reiterated truth perspective, that you and I will look from a renewed sense of obedience, knowing that the man who God thinks is great is a man who loves like this. Now, in order to maximize our time together, I want to start looking at this snapshot, this portrait of a good father. Look at verse 4, if you would, of 1 Corinthians 13, and just look at the first one. Love is patient, or love, you may have, suffers long. We saw the Greek verb is makrothermeo, and that is the word that's used over and over again in the New Testament. It describes patience with people. It, uh, it, it isn't so much a word that concerns itself with circumstances or events. I'm just patiently waiting through this time, or I'm sitting at the light, or I'm, 
at the store waiting to get in or whatever. It's not really so much used that way as it is used in relation to an interaction with people. It's, it's the word that is used of the man who is wronged and has it easily within his power to avenge himself, but will never do it. It's the spirit that doesn't retaliate. It describes a person who doesn't lash out. This is, this is a unique concept in the culture, both ancient and modern, because this was and is not considered a virtue in the modern culture. In fact, we think a person is really something who can walk up and tear into somebody. We think somebody who's really something, if they can articulate clearly in writing, uh, to kind of disseminate and, and rip apart somebody else's opinion, we think that's fantastic. We think it's great. Hollywood knows that we think it's great because it produces all kinds of movies of people who take vengeance and those sell lots of tickets. So this is completely contrary to the ancient and modern culture and, and, and uh, how we're able to express our thoughts very concisely to somebody who offended us or disrespected us is, is held in high esteem. And this is the opposite of what the scripture says love does. The opposite of the culture is the man God thinks is great because the opposite is what the culture does. And what God says is the man who he thinks is great has patience. It doesn't retaliate. Second snapshot of a good father. Now, beloved, if you only grabbed one of these and you took it home and you decided this is how I'm going to act, your family has changed. This is how important these things are. Love is kind, it says. And this is also the flip side. Long-suffering endures the injuries of others. You have it in your power to to take revenge and you don't. And kindness pays them back, but only with good things. That's the essence of it. The root word in the Greek means useful, actually, which gives a whole new understanding to kindness. In other words, I'll do anything that I can do that's useful, and that's love. It's a thoughtful response, and here it is, men, that knows enough about the other person in order to do something that's actually useful to them. Not something you think is useful, but something they think is useful. It's not an abstract. It's not an adjective. It is the deed of kindness. It is the act that you do for someone else, which they need done. And when Scripture says love is kind, it isn't talking about a sweet attitude. It's talking about a useful deed to someone else. Love gives itself away to help someone, even an enemy. When Jesus said, love your enemies, he didn't mean feel good about them. Okay? He was simply saying, do good things for your enemies. We've talked about that many times, right? Scripture tells us uh, the path to doing good things for your enemies and people who don't like you and you know are opposed to you is to begin by praying and asking the Lord to bless them. And that begins to realign your thoughts. And then as your thoughts become realigned, you're able to do kind things to those who are not kind to you. And if we're going to do good things, if we're required to do good things for our enemies, men, what are we to do for those that we lead? For those in our family, for our wives. And so Paul gives this direction in this really harsh surrounding of a sinful uh, selfish church and in the hard environment of a, of a very bad world uh, it brings ridicule and negative influences to bear on biblical love and then and and beloved men when we go out into the workplace and we come home we perhaps have experienced all those kinds of harsh things and ridicule and all that and we come home from all that and we bring a harsh attitude to bear on our families so we just carry that job right home but if we're to be the man that God thinks is great this will be the atmosphere where the character of love is really going to shine where you make a voluntary decision 
volitionally to do this kind of love. Now, do we see any models of kindness of love? A love that does good for others? Well, certainly God is a great opportunity. It gives us a great opportunity to see that, right? Romans 2, 4. Paul reminds them, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and his tolerance and his patience, knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And so right away, I think we can understand how this all works. If you think before you were saved and how God still allowed good things to come to you, common grace, which was part of your life before you came to faith. And we experience this every day from him. See, we know what this looks like. God has done again and again things to benefit even his enemies. Has he not? And even in our most recent study in Second Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, we know that God is very generous, isn't he? Completely generous to those who he loves and he lavishes on them wonderful things continually so the the riches of his kindness tolerance and patience that we experience every day and of course along the same idea as luke 10 30 through 36 that was a parable of the good samaritan jesus didn't define the word neighbor did he who is my neighbor he didn't define the word neighbor when he was asked to what did he do he described the good neighbor didn't he we got to see the actions of what a good neighbor looked like. Somebody who saw somebody hurting alongside the road and came and bound them up and paid for them to be taken care of. That's what, that's what a good neighbor looked like, see, because it did things. It was dealing with actions, not academics. It wasn't going to go through and, uh, all the different kind of word pictures. He just basically said, this is what a neighbor does. In his poem, Outwitted, Edwin Markham wrote, he drew a circle that shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout, but kindness and I had a wit to win. We drew a circle that took him in. God's kind. God does things in kindness. First Peter chapter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore, putting aside all malice, just obviously, if we've experienced the kindness of God, this is an obvious type of command, but one that Peter makes nonetheless. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word so that you buy it so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation catch this verse 3 if what you have tasted the kindness of the lord have you of course we have so if you've tasted the kindness of the lord then you put aside malice and you put aside deceit and you put aside hypocrisy and envy and slander and you long for the pure milk of the word because you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. It's just the same word again. God is just good, and he does good things, see? And he does useful things, and he does helpful things for people. And this is the grace that can heal the hurts of your family, beloved. You know, when, when couples have struggles, it isn't like a five-step program or a ten-step program. You need to go through this, and you'll be fine. You just need to put to work these kinds of things. If you're really interested in repairing your relationship, this is what it's going to look like, man. And let me ask you this, in your families, are you kind to one another? I mean, really kind? Is your first thought, what can I do to be useful and meaningful to my wife after they just irritated you? How can I repay their anger with kindness? How can I repay their hurt with something good and useful that needs to be done? Men, are you kind to your children? Do your children sense a tenderness with them? Do you go out of your way to do kind things for them? And I'm not talking about getting things for them to replace unkindness or getting things to replace a time when you're not there. What I'm talking about is do things that are kind to them. Do you go the second mile or can you not be bothered with all of that? Are you willing to make some sacrifices to be helpful to them? It's, um, 
it's really that two men on a trail illustration, you know, that the trail is only wide enough for one person. There's a steep drop on one side and a sheer walk, rock wall on the other. Two hikers meeting, they're going separate directions. And, and how are they going to get past each other? You know, they try to squeeze past. That's not going to work. They scratch their heads. One doesn't say anything. He just lies down and the other one goes. That's it. That's it. And, and I, I don't want to misconstrue the intent. Okay, I, This has to do with each one having a priority of things to do and they conflict with what the other one wants to do. That's the issue. And love does this. Love gives in if it's going to benefit someone else. It's, it's going to be useful. And that's the spirit Paul's after in the Corinthian church. This is the man that God thinks is great. He says to them, if you'd only minister in a self-sacrificing way and a non-retaliatory manner, not avenging and only returning kindness, then your spiritual gifts would mean something. In fact, that's how he starts this passage in 1 Corinthians 13.1. He just says, if you have all these gifts, but you don't have love, it's just meaningless. Now look at the next one. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. And I think this thing really works like this. I want what they have, and I wish they didn't have it. That's jealousy. The root word in the Greek is from which we derive the, uh, this word's meaning, to boil and enter boiling. We looked at it not too long ago. A seething or steaming over someone else's success. It's that rottenness of the bones, as Solomon puts it. It's the green sickness that Shakespeare talks about. It's, um, it's easy to do. It's easy to be jealous. It's hard to rejoice over somebody who does what you do, only they do it better. It's... Um, it's hard as an athlete to play behind someone who's better than you or, or asking the question, why does that person get to have this or that? Uh, these things are really hard to deal with. So it's not just hypothetical situations. We deal with it every day. You get a lot of strange thoughts in your mind. And it's not something we have to explain to anybody. You know, the jealousy, everybody knows what you're talking about. And if, if it's there, then it's the opposite of love. In fact, if you remember 1 Corinthians 3, 1, Paul said, Brother and I could not speak to you as spiritual men. Remember this, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. This is the church that he that he pastored for eighteen months, and now has gone from them. And he's writing back to them. You should have grown by now, but I could. You don't. You haven't grown, and so I can't talk to you as if you're spiritual. What do I have to do? I have to give you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, you're not. Still not able to receive it. Verse 3, 4, you are still fleshly. For since, well, how does he know that? Well, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly or are you walking like mere men? And so Paul identifies it early on. There is envy and strife in the church. And he says they're suffering what Solomon in Proverbs 14, 30 calls the rottenness of bones. But the man God thinks is great isn't the jealous man, see? When love sees someone who is prosperous, when love sees someone who is popular, when love sees someone who's really good at something or, or powerful or beautiful or rich or gifted, love is what? Love's glad. Love rejoices. The opposite of love here, jealousy. See Paul's evaluation of the envious nature of some of the church just shows immaturity. And it's such a destructive kind of thing in your marriage. And, and if you went through scripture and you charted the sins that were related to jealousy, you wouldn't, yeah, you, you could be there a really long time. You wouldn't have very much trouble charting them. In fact, you know what the first sin was, right? Jealousy, envy. Satan says to Eve, wouldn't you like to be like who? God. And Eve says, well, yes, I would. 
I'd like to know what he knows. I'd like to have his privilege, his understanding, and jealousy spawned Eve's first sin, and the race fell. And the next sin you see in the Bible is murder. And Cain kills Abel because he was what? Jealous. He was envious or jealous of the acceptance of Abel's sacrifice over his own. And you don't go very far until you run into some, some brothers, and they have a particular brother named Joseph, and they sold him into slavery because they were jealous. And at that point, you realize in your chart, it's going to get pretty long because you're still in Genesis. But you can save some time and you realize how quickly they're going to add up and you just skip to James chapter 3, verse 14. And James says this, he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. In other words, if jealousy is there, you don't have anything to be proud of. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. And I think we have a little bit of that acting out in all of our major cities on a regular night, every night of the week. Don't we? So you can end your list because every evil work is spawned out of jealousy and selfishness, right? So where jealousy is there, there's disorder and every evil thing. So anytime you see a sin, you see an evil thing, at some point, jealousy entered into the picture. So it doesn't put you in very good company. And this is why Paul tells us there's no place in the life of a believer for that, and certainly not for the man whose kids are watching and whose, whose wife is watching. That, that's not the man God thinks is great. Let's look at our next snapshot of a good father, the kind of man that God thinks is great. In verse 4, it says, Love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, love does not brag, and is not arrogant. And, and that may seem like repetition or synonyms, but they're not. There is a difference. Two actions that won't flow out of biblical manhood. The first statement represents the speech of pride, so, or the action of pride, and the second is the attitude of pride. So both of those are taken in, or conceit, or har you know, harbored inside. So this word brag comes from a word meaning rash. It is the vocalization, or the hot air, if you will, of, of someone lifting themselves up. It's the inevitable self-praise that comes out of a mouth of a proud and conceited person. Interesting enough, the particular word is used only one time in the entire New Testament, right here. Somebody who talks a lot about how many things they've done. The man that God thinks is great is not rash. It's not always shooting off its mouth about its own accomplishments. Love does not use arrogant words designed to make me look better than you. Because that's an effort to make people jealous. So it kind of backs into the previous one. In doing it, you're kind of working against the Holy Spirit's desire to make the other man or your wife into a person that God thinks is great. C.S. Lewis said that boasting was the sin that was part of the very essence of man. And I think that he's exactly right. Only love as a, ver as a verb displaces our flaunting of our knowledge, our flaunting of our education, or our flaunting of our ability, or our gifts, while in fact we're really nothing. Something else you won't find in a man God thinks is great, he's not arrogant. So here's the root of boasting. Love's not boasting, it's not puffed up, love's not conceited, and here's why. Conceit says, I'm better than you, and love says the opposite. Conceit says, I want everyone to know all about me, and love says, I want to know all about you. And that's how you kind of combat that. Proverbs has a lot to say about boasting and bragging and arrogance, and we don't have time to even scratch the surface of a study just on that topic out of Proverbs. So I'd like you to read some of these things that it says, and I'll just put them on the screen. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. Actually, I'm not going to put, yeah, I, somehow I don't have them there. But um, Proverbs eight thirteen. just listen to these. I think they'll be very beneficial for you. 
The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogance, and the evil way, and the preferred mouth I hate. So the fear of the Lord is to hate evil and pride and arrogance. In fact, the Lord says over and over again, pride and arrogance are things that he hates. Proverbs 11.2 says, when pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble, there is wisdom. Proverbs 13.10 says, through insolence comes nothing but strife. Insolence is a great way to describe arrogance in the heart of someone. But wisdom is with those who receive counsel. So you ever met somebody, they're always the smartest guy in the room, so you don't want to be that guy. That's an insolent guy, an arrogant guy. Wisdom is with those who receive counsel. Man, is that ever true? All pride does is stir up contention. All pride does is cause a fight. That's all it ever does. I've yet to see humility cause a single fight. Humble people don't have to argue about anything. They just give, and there there are men out there doing that, beloved. You know, there are men in this church that do that. And they, they don't draw attention to themselves, but every day they're putting themselves last and giving, and they're being patient and doing kind things for their families. And they're not arrogant. They're humble. They don't draw attention to themselves. They don't make a big deal about it. They're not saying, hey, look at me or whatever. They're just leading their family like that. And those, beloved, are the guys that men that God thinks is great. And those are the men that God will reward, and someday everybody will know. But right now, no one does. Proverbs 29-23 says, A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. So the man that God thinks is great never thinks about his own importance. William Carey, one of the most influential missionaries who have ever lived, most likely the finest linguist that has ever lived, he translated at least parts of the Bible into no less than 34 different languages. He started his life as a shoe repairman. When he went to India, he started his work in a society with a very glaringly defined caste system. He endured a lot of persecution and a lot of insult. It's been recorded that one evening during a dinner party, a snob was present. I've heard at dinner parties, they often attract snobs. Uh, this snob was addressing William Carey in a very discourteous tone, and he said this. He said, um, of course, with the idea of humiliating him, he said in a tone and at, loud enough for everyone to hear, quote, I suppose, Mr. Carey, you once worked as a shoemaker. Carey answered, no, your lordship, not a shoemaker, only a cobbler. Didn't even claim to make shoes, only to mend them. Wouldn't even claim that he he did something beyond what he actually did. The man that God thinks is great has some character traits that are going to flow from biblical manhood, and it is love as a verb. And love in action is superior to eloquence, and love is superior to spiritual insight, as we saw uh, if you read verses 1 through 4, and it's superior to faith, and it's superior to charity, and it's superior to martyrdom. All those kinds of things don't stack up if love's not there, see. There's this whole concept of life, beloved. Men, that's embodied in this passage. It really takes in every kind of situation that you're going to be in. And it might be a significantly different lifestyle from the one we live now, which is why we're going through the passage. And again, will you have the integrity to kind of and honesty to put your life up against these passages and say, this is me or this is not me? And they'd be willing to do the change that's necessary. Our sixth snapshot of a man God thinks is great from 1 Corinthians 13.5 is a man that does not act unbecomingly. Love doesn't behave offensively. That's the way you can read that. It's a very practical observation by the Holy Spirit. The verb here means to behave in an inappropriate manner. In other words, poor manners or rudeness. And you would think that this is a relatively simple concept when compared to the snapshot of agape love. It seems 
relatively simple when compared to that, but poor manners and impoliteness is saying this. It's saying, I don't love you because by my actions I show I could care less about what affects you. And husbands, you can be that way with your wife. You can just be who you are and do the things you do, however gross or, or uncouth or rude they might be. And you just think, well, she knows me and she just has to accept me. But beloved, love doesn't act like that. Love isn't rude. Or it's saying to her, I'm going to do what pleases me no matter what you think about it or me. But the man God thinks is great is concerned about how what he does or says affects someone else. Remember 1 Corinthians 11. Same language is used of someone who would come to the Lord's table and overeat at the love feast and eat more than they should, not leave enough for somebody else, or people shouting out things in the, in the middle of the service. Uh, the, the minister is speaking and somebody stands up or just speaks from uh, the congregation, wanting to be heard, arrogance, self-centeredness, rudeness. Some men in the church uh, of Corinth were poster models for this kind of behavior, see. I'd like you to hold your finger here. Just turn to Luke chapter 7. Will you do that? It's a great passage, and, and one I think that you'll, you're able to kind of see the whole thing in, in motion here. You're able to see uh, what should have been done and what has been done and what was said about it. But look at Luke chapter 7, verse 36. We'll be back to First uh, Corinthians 13 in just a minute. Picks up like this. Now, one of the Pharisees, see that? I hear you still turning, so I'll wait just a few minutes. Luke 7, 36, it says, Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So Jesus is out. He's been asked to dinner. He's going to go. And at dinner parties, there's often snobs, and here's a perfect example. Verse 37, And there was uh, some other people there, so the snob's already there, and you're going to find the snob is actually hosting the dinner party. Verse 37, and there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. The word actually is immoral woman, so no doubt a prostitute. This woman in the city was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, verse 38, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume, verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, that she is a sinner. See, that, that's rude attitudes already in his mind, isn't it? And it was going to be followed shortly by rude words, but he's not going to get the chance because we're going to see Jesus gives us an example of graciousness, verse 40, and Jesus answered him, Simon. So you can just tell that he... Jesus is listening to this whole thought process, and before Simon can actually speak and say anything, Jesus interrupts the thought process. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. So Jesus is speaking, verse 41, a moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Verse 42, when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both, so which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Verse 44, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Verse 45, you gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. Verse 46, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. 
Now, these are all things that weren't special things that were going to be done by some special guests, just the normal courtesy of the Near East. Verse 47, For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven. How could you tell? Well, the way that she acted. Not because she did all those things, but because in doing them she revealed where her heart was. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Verse 48, then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Verse 49, those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What can we learn from that little interchange? Oh, here's Simon thinking, you know, what are you doing here, you despicable woman, and other very rude thoughts. He didn't care about what Jesus thought. He didn't care about what the woman thought. He was getting ready to say, no doubt, rude things and just speak his mind, which is rarely a good thing when you're thinking stuff like that, men. When you have this attitude of you're right and everybody else around you is wrong, it's very, very unwise for you to speak at that point. And Jesus, in his graciousness, speaks up and he shields the woman from the disparagement and the haughtiness and the cold rudeness of this Pharisee. And Jesus extended to the woman love and compassion and forgiveness and redemption. Because the man God thinks is great is gracious. He isn't rude. And a good place to start practicing this is in your home. Man. Love can deliver us from being short-fused. It can set us free from always thinking about ourselves. It can transport us from the green sickness of envy, and it can convey us from the hot air of bragging and bravado of arrogance. And love can save us from being so overblown with our own significance, which is usually a problem in the house, or so unconcerned about those around us that we're rude and undisciplined in our habits, actions, or speech. And then we're just rude to everybody else. So the propensity to behave without grace shows that we are disdainful of others and others' feelings, and that's not the snapshot of a man or a father or a husband that God thinks is great. And lastly for today, and, and uh, we didn't even make it halfway through, but our seventh picture of this photo gallery of a man God thinks is great from 1 Corinthians 13.5 is the man that does not seek his own. It is the converse of self-seeking. The man that God thinks is great isn't interested in his own things. He's interested in the needs of someone else. And men, your boys are watching you, and they're paying attention to what you're doing and how you're managing this part. Remember the church at Corinth had a problem here they, in their use of languages. Paul says in chapter 14, when someone speaks in a language, he edifies himself. It's one of the things he's reprimanding them for. You're just concerned about yourself. The fact that they were self-seeking and seeking self-edification. And 1 Corinthians 14, 12, he says, So also you, since you're zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church, not for yourself. And so even in the area of spiritual gifts, something that was excellent, something that the, the Holy Spirit had given, they had warped it and just made it a self-centered kind of thing. So instead of using their gifts for others, they were using their gifts to make themselves feel good and look good. But the man God thinks is great is liberated from that type of thinking and that type of attitude. He never dwells on himself. And it's a problem that can really plague men, even in the church. Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, he said, Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For anyone who thinks he's something when he is nothing deceives himself. That takes in a very broad swath. So you, you want to be a reprint of the snapshot of Jesus? Do you want to fulfill the teachings of Jesus? Then what? 
Bear one another's burdens. Think of others before yourself. Bear the burden that your wife would have to bear. Bear that burden your child may have to bear. Help them with that. And don't think that you're something, because you're not, and neither am I. Do it and don't do it. Bear one another's burdens and don't think that you're something when you're not and you're on your way. Fulfill this one, fulfill this one snapshot of fatherhood and you're where you're supposed to be. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the what? The law of Christ. Jesus won this one thing and you're precisely where the Lord wants you to be. Jesus did that, didn't he? Got a lot to say about it. Chapter Matthew chapter 20, verse 25. Jesus called them to himself and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It's not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus himself didn't come to be served. As I was reading that passage this week, wrap your mind around that, men. Think about that. The one person in the universe who deserved to be served, if there's anyone who deserved to be served, didn't spend his life here getting served. And we are so arrogant sometimes in our smug expectation about needing to be served by someone or by served by our wife or whatever. See, And how that must grieve the heart of God to see that. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, Make my joy complete. That's what Paul says. Make my joy complete. How? By being of the same mind. So don't think that you're over someone. Maintaining the same love. United in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. You're just taking in all these kinds of things we saw, right? Selfishness and conceit, those things are not love. It's the opposite of the man that God thinks is great. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, a bondservant who's willing, that's somebody who's willingly a servant, as someone who was a slave and was released and then came back to the master and said, I don't want to leave, I want to serve you. And in ancient times, they would take an awl and drive a hole through their ear to mark him as a bondservant. And he would stay. Jesus came not because he had to, because he wanted to. Taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul understood that Jesus was that perfect portrait of selflessness. And so, as he sits for this 1 Corinthians snapshot, 
how it must have grieved him to see the Corinthian church and all their selfishness, not living for others and not concerned with the welfare of others and rude to each other, not thoughtful of others' feelings and needs, just selfish and self-centered and egotistical and narcissistic and arrogant and self-important, and the church isn't supposed to be like that, and the man that God thinks is great doesn't act like that. The man God thinks is great shows he loves because he doesn't condemn. And the man God thinks is great shows he loves because he meets the needs of others. And the man that God thinks is great shows he loves because he's not looking to take care of himself. And the man God thinks is great shows he loves because he's patient and he does thoughtful, needful things for other people. And the man that God thinks is great shows he loves because he's glad for someone else's achievements. And the man that God thinks is great shows he loves because he pushes other people up and he wants to know about other people. And the man that God thinks is great shows he loves because he's considered of someone else's needs. And the man that God thinks is great shows he loves because he gives his life away for other people. And we're out of time. And, and you know, just as a footnote, every one of these you come to in this passage, and, and I think you, you can feel this with me, see, it, it seems the best, doesn't it? I mean, you just kind of go through, and every time you get to one, you just think, wow, I, that's the best one. And you look at the next one and think, well, I can't leave that one out of the message. And if you're putting a message together, you keep looking at these and you're like, well, I've got to squeeze all these in. You know? I mean, I can't leave that out. I mean, the man God thinks is great isn't provoked. Oh, that's a good one, right? The man that God thinks is great doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It means he doesn't give a history lesson every time something happens to him in his family. Well, you did that before, you know, two years ago. You did exactly the same thing you said you wouldn't do yesterday. The man who loves isn't that way. How about this one? Verse 6. The man who God thinks is great does not rejoice in unrighteousness. So he's not happy when other people are being punished. He's not happy when other people do bad and things bad happen to them. He's not, he's not, he's not happy about that. He doesn't celebrate things that are bad. The man God thinks is great. Look at this next one. Rejoices with the truth. The man God thinks is great bears all things. He bears all things. Goes right with the Philippians passage you've just looked at. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the, the law of Christ. He bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. The man God thinks is great, love never fails. So which one of those do we leave out? Everyone seems to be the best. Which one's less necessary? And so we'll just have to bookmark this passage and come back next Father's Day. But here's the thing. You're not just going to be able to pull this out of your hat. Okay, You can't whip it up. You can't say today, okay, I'm going to walk out and I'm going to do all these things and it's going to be great. Everything's going to be great. You know, I've been cranky for three days, but today I'm going to love. Okay, I've had a bad mood all this whole week, but today I'm going to be generous and kind and I'm going to do kind deeds. See, You know, you go and look at, at your Bible bookmark that says love never fails. You know, I gave you a couple years ago. And you read a few Bible verses and you go out and you really love. No, you, you can't do that. It doesn't work that way at all. When you walk in the Spirit, men, you turn your life over to His control. You confess your sin. That's where you're going to start, where you've not done these kinds of things. And you allow the Spirit of God to govern your thought patterns through the reading of the Word of God on a regular basis. See, And that begins to change what goes on inside of you. And when the Spirit controls you, He produces fruit. And one of the fruit of the Spirit is love. And love will only come in that way. 
and love only looks like this. So you can't approach it in some self-righteous determination in your own mind. You have to yield your life to the Spirit of God. And begin each day by saying, Holy Spirit, control me today. Take over my life. Live through me. And then spend some time in the Word so that you know what to do and how to act. And you're not quenching the Spirit in your life. And the outcome will be, the outcome will be biblical manhood. The man that God thinks is great. That's my prayer for you tonight, today, beloved. And let's, let's close in a word of prayer as we're out of time. And uh, I know you have a full day. Lord, we thank you today for uh, time to be together. We're grateful that we could do some simple things that the church has done all along, that we could worship you in song, that we could worship you in giving, that we could worship you in prayer time, and we could worship you by the reading and exaltation of your word, setting it as the standard for our behavior. And so, Lord, I just pray that you will do your work through your Holy Spirit, through us, in us, as you reveal the broken parts and then replace them with the correct ones. And Lord, as men, myself, uh, my prayer is that these things become evident more and more. They're not things that I don't know. They're not things that these men don't know. They're just things we don't do. And we make all kinds of justification for it. And but Lord, these things need to be apparent for us to be the type of model we need to be for our sons and our daughters, for those the Lord has placed in our care, our children who look to us, for our wives, of whom we're supposed to be spiritual leaders, taking the spiritual headship and showing by example what love looks like. You say, well, my wife won't follow me. Well, maybe she's learned that you don't walk with the Lord, so she's not going to follow you. Because she's only required to follow you as unto the Lord. When you do things that are ungodly, she is has to be on her own. So don't do that. And Father, I pray that you will work through us. So love those you've given to us. Help love to be evident in the church in the same way. You know, these are the people that you think are great. We thank you for Jesus who has given us uh, his life as an atonement. Raised up again to secure our salvation giving us the Holy Spirit, we might have the power to do these kinds of things through the Word of God working in our own heart. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. We thank you for him. We look forward to seeing him. And all God's people say, Amen.